So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Iran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering. And our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. 
and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in a tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him. And in their hearts, 
turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet? Your fathers did not persecute. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You, who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. He was taking them in his defense of himself on a tour through their history, history for which they were very proud of, but who knows, history has elements in it that aren't something to brag about. And then he paralleled the things in their history they weren't proud of with themselves, including their fathers. And it steamed them, turned them from a courtroom into a lynch mob instantly. What a story. What a sermon. They had accused him of four things. He was accused of blaspheming Moses and blaspheming God. They had secretly induced men, paid false witnesses to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And then in court, he was accused of blaspheming the temple, this holy place, and the law. They let him speak. Here in front of the Sanhedrin, whose days, months, maybe just a year or so earlier, had threatened their leaders to not preach in the name of Jesus. And here was Stephen doing so. And now he's been accused by a synagogue of the freedmen, 
It's gone out into the public realm. Now the public people are getting upset at them. It's not just the religious leaders that are getting upset. So no doubt the Sanhedrin was delighted to get another chance to deal with these rebellious followers of Jesus. And so they hauled him in and let these people testify against him for blaspheming Moses, God, the temple, and the law. And in his defense, he just takes them on a journey through history. And they're listening for the mistake. They're listening for the mistake, not knowing he has laid a landmine in the middle of the room, and at the right moment, he's going to pull the trigger and blow up the room. They gnash your teeth, which I think is kind of like a form of growling, grinding your teeth when you're angry. They gnash your teeth at him and just rushed him right out. No more verdicts, no nothing. You're a dead man and stoned him outside the city. So in his address, he called them brothers and fathers. So he's identifying with them as a fellow Jew and he's recognizing those in the room that are older than him. And he begins to tell a story of their race. And interlaced through this story is another story of rejecting God's leadership. The first instance is Joseph. His own brothers, out of envy, sold him into slavery (laughs) because they didn't want him to be their leader. And he was sharing dreams that he was having about leadership. And lo and behold, a famine comes. And uh, to make a long story short, they wind up bowing before their brother who was their leader. He was God's man that they had rejected Uh, And some of them even wanted to kill him, you know. Thank goodness they didn't. So this is first example of their forefathers doing this. Next example was their forefathers rejected Moses. The story of how he was delivered from death and raised in Pharaoh's household. And the day came when he tried to do something about their oppression and killed one of their slave drivers. The next day he saw a couple of them fighting. He tried to make peace. And they said, who made you a ruler over us? They rejected a man God had sent them. Forty years later, God sends him back to be their leader. And those people give him heck for 40 years of rejecting his leadership, rebelling against him, moments of devotion, but short-lived. Every time there was a problem, they would fall apart and say, you brought us out here in the wilderness to die. There again, their forefathers rejecting God's leadership. And when God gave them the law, what were they doing while Moses is on the mountain receiving the, receiving the Ten Commandments? They're at the foot of the mountain having a party around an idol that they, they had built out of gold, the golden calf. This was their forefathers had rebelled against the law from the very beginning. And then they're all up in arms about something he said about the temple When Isaiah prophesied that heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, where is the house you will build for me and where is the place of my rest? Isaiah 66, 1, and then verse 2 says, For all those things my hand is made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. God is not interested in our church buildings. He's interested in our hearts. Probably no one in this room would vandalize this building. But you might vandalize this body by talking bad about one another. Which one is God most concerned about? 
the hearts of people. And so Stephen reminds them of this truth from their own prophet. And so after covering the historical rebellion of their forefathers, he then clearly and boldly points out their own evil rebellion. In verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked. Now he pulls a pin on the grenade. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, which God denounces in Deuteronomy 10, 16, by the way, and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. You're just like Joseph's brothers. You're just like the people partying around the golden calf. You're just like the people telling Moses, who made you the deliverer over us? You guys are all excited about the temple. You're not excited about the condition of your hearts. And like their fathers who killed the prophets, they had murdered the Messiah. Moses had predicted a prophet was coming that was like him. He referred to that in his discourse. He he concludes his speech by saying in verse 52, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and not kept it. You guys are all about honoring the Torah and you're not keeping it. And you killed the Messiah who was, who was prophesied to come by the prophets that your forefathers killed. Convicted, did they fall on their faces and say, yes, you're right, oh God, forgive us? No. You're out of here. How dare you? You don't know who I am. I'm speaking to you today on the subject, history's lesson. Now, we say learn history lest you repeat it. Those who do not know history are condemned to repeat it. That's true. It's a truism. And then again, it's not so true. Humanity knows its history, and yet it continues to repeat it. We just don't learn what we know. The wisdom isn't there. Here's what I think history's greatest lesson is. Don't rebel against God. or it may become your legacy. Somebody fed the data into a computer of the world's history and programmed it to come out with a short synopsis of world history. This is a joke. Here's a synopsis of world history in one sentence. It is, there ain't no free lunch. It's always going to cost you something. That's a synopsis of the world history. Well, biblically, I think the synopsis of world history is don't rebel against God. It may become your legacy. Now, before we look down our long noses at the people in this story and not apply the word to our hearts, well, I would never do that. Yeah, but do you ever rebel against God? oh, no, I don't cuss anymore. Yeah, but what about the things the Lord asks you to do? Like, like um, don't judge or forgive or give or show mercy or love your enemies. Oh, now you're messing with me now, Pastor. <laughs> well, to avoid messing with you, let's let somebody else mess with us. This is who messed with me recently. 
I subscribe to World Magazine, which is a Christian magazine similar to Time, same quality as Newsweek. And there's comments on the world, reports from around the world, and pictures and things on the arts. And it's not all holy, but it's not an unholy magazine. Anyway, in the back, the back two pages are two columns that I always read. One is by Andre Sue Peterson. She's a Canadian, and she always knocks on the door of my heart with some convicting truth. This, was, this one is entitled, Pointing Out Potholes. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read some excerpts and her conclusion. She says, as a 65-year-old, I desire to warn those coming up behind me about certain choices that look like wisdom at the time, but they create all hell to pay. I confess that as a young spouse, I thought the silent treatment would foster in my spouse the attentiveness I considered that was owed me. It did not do that. Not only did it not do that, I found that choice hardened into a habit and the habit into character that I could scarcely quit when I wanted to. Hell came calling decades later. The day I thought we were having a pleasant family meal in a restaurant, my son blurted out, you and dad fought the whole time I was growing up. I didn't think he had noticed. (laughs) But here it had tarnished his Christian childhood. Back then I thought I could pull off punishing my spouse while raising my children in the church. A second besetting past sin that I confess is indulgence in entertaining all kinds of ungodly, repetitive, and unproductive thoughts and thought patterns without ever once in 30 years stopping to ask myself, is this a godly use of my brain? Are these not demonic thoughts? Should I have not thought to stop and pray to ask God to take them away? Should I not have at least applied effort to resist them? These are just two failings of my life. And underneath both of them is one sin, the sin of unbelief. My problem was not ignorance, for I have always liked the Bible and enjoyed reading it. I knew what God says about love and forgiveness and not holding grudges. I knew what he says about fighting the good fight and taking captive every thought and demolishing every mental case that I was building. I just believed that my way of doing things was superior at obtaining what I wanted out of life. Yet God's word still cries from the housetop, See, I have set before you today death and life, good and evil. Choose life so that you and your offspring, there it is, a legacy, may live. The power is ours in Christ. In his case, in addressing the Sanhedrin, which was the court of the Jewish people in the Roman Empire 20 centuries ago, what was the underlying thing behind all their rejection? was unbelief. They did not believe Joseph's dreams were from God. They did not believe that God was behind Moses being raised 
in the household of Pharaoh. They did not believe that God had called him to be their deliverer. They did not believe Moses was coming down from that mountain with a law that was theirs to live by and form their culture around. They did not believe there was a relationship with God available outside the monstrosity of the beautiful temple that they worship almost as an idol. It was unbelief. In our own lives, what is underneath our sins? Whether it's harshness towards someone that's annoyed you or a conspiracy to commit murder. Underneath it all is unbelief. We don't believe God cares or we don't believe God means what he says. Oh, we don't believe God is real. Oh, we don't believe there can be victory over our minds and the way we think. Unbelief is underneath it all. 1 John 1 says, if we confess our sins, just admit to God, I have sinned. He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to free us from all unrighteousness. Maybe you've confessed the same sin over and over and over again and there's no freedom for you. You just find yourself confessing again and again and again. What's the problem? The problem is you're, you're not really confessing the sin behind the sin. Maybe there's some unbelief, you reckon? Does anybody ever get hit with thoughts of unbelief? We all do. I tell you what, if there's ever a thought to take captive and not allow to take root in your heart, that is unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for every person here that we would realize that history's lesson really is don't rebel against you lest we leave a legacy of the same. Help us, Lord, to repent of our sins from sin, most of all, to uproot every form of unbelief. In Jesus' name, Jesus' name. I just want to pray this scripture. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take heed, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Lord, we want you to be our living God. We don't want to depart from you. Help us, Lord, to be aware if in our hearts there's any shred of unbelief. Make us compliant people, pliable in your hands like clay is to a potter, willing to yield to what you would have to do. And Lord, when we're tempted to be angry, help us to hold on to the promises and remember that you make all things new, that you make everything work together for good, that you have predestined us to be conformed to your image, that it's not all about our happiness, but it's about your holiness being revealed in our lives. In Jesus' name, Lord, reveal every ounce of unbelief in my heart and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. When my children were at home, they would point out, point out some shortcoming in my life.
I, out of defensiveness, would say, hey, it runs in the family. Don't pick on me. Even though that was defensiveness, it really wasn't any defense. It just added to the indictment against me. If it runs in the family, why am I not stopping the leak? I don't want my descendants to keep bailing the same water I've been bailing. So this is a heavy word, but it's the truth. And it got a man stoned. I hope no one wants to go out and get stoned or stone me. But that we would apply the word and that we would be people of faith and belief in action. As believers, it would be hard for one of us to admit that we're wrestling with unbelief. That's a bad confession. Obviously, we don't want to be whiners and complainers making bad confessions, but a good, a good confession is agreeing with the truth. Agreeing with the truth. And if the truth is, I am wrestling with unbelief, then to confess that, it is a good confession, so that I can be cleansed of all unrighteousness. Right? Lord, I believe person cried out to Jesus, help my unbelief. As we grow in Christ, he is growing us out of every ounce of unbelief. You do not have to have perfect 24-7 faith to get saved. It takes calling on the name of the Lord. By grace we save through faith, and that faith is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. So God's given us the gift of saving faith if you're a believer. his desire for that faith to grow and when unbelief is anywhere we've got to deal with it otherwise it will we'll find ourselves doing stuff and defending it holding on to things like giving someone close to you the silent treatment rather than talking about stuff well i like my way better well you won't like the fruit of it don't rebel against god it just may leave a legacy can we stand the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And may you take heed, lest there be in any part of us an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. May you grow in your faith and knowledge of him. In Jesus' name, amen. Go get him, tigers. God bless you.